in the last few weeks. I'm your host, Amanda, and hopefully my voice sounds reasonably okay. It's been a journey. (laughs) This is episode 121, and today's special guest is Leia, the owner of Seedling Vintage. Leia is a vintage seller in addition to, like many of us, to doing many other things, including being a mom and working another full-time job. And I am so excited for you to meet her. Her journey to selling vintage is a long one, as they tend to be, and it starts at a big fast fashion retailer, it moves into experiential design, and ultimately finds meaning, comfort, and her place in the world via vintage. We're going to talk about so much from what the heck is experiential design, I know you are already thinking that, to debunking again, we will debunk this forever, the myth that we are running out of secondhand clothing. Spoiler, we're not. You already knew that. That's why you're listening. Anyway, I just wanted to say it again. (laughs) I was originally going to split this conversation into two parts like I usually do, but I realized that I just do not have the voice or the time between coughing spells to do a long monologue this week. I'm getting over my first cold in years. Now Dustin has it, so we're suffering all over again. And I have to say, I had forgotten just how miserable a cold can be. Years ago, when Dustin and I took our first trip to Japan for our honeymoon, well, I was beyond excited. Like those words don't even begin to capture how, oh, how excited. I'm going to feel this way when I get to go to Japan again, when the pandemic is over. Seriously, I think about it sometimes, how excited I'm going to feel. And I tear up a little bit because I remember how excited I was the first time we went to Japan. Anyway, this was a trip that I had been dreaming of making since I was a teenager. And naturally, I had to because this is how I work. I am the kid who used to read the encyclopedia for fun. I had to read everything I could about Japan, Japanese culture, and the day-to-day social mores of life in Japan. Because I am a firm believer that as travelers, we must be polite and respectful when traveling. Not because of some patriotic ideal that I want to make a good impression as an American, but just that I want to be a good person and show my appreciation for being welcomed into someone else's space. Just being a nice human, right? Anyway, my policy of being a polite and respectful traveler includes adopting social norms like removing shoes indoors and wearing a mask when you're sick, etc. And one thing I read as I was studying up on this, getting prepared, getting myself really excited, I read about how in Japan, if you have the flu, you're encouraged to stay home because it is so contagious and can be so debilitating and deadly for others. Like, it's serious. But if you have a cold... You're encouraged to just take some medicine. And trust me, Japan has some really intense cold medicine offerings, including one called Brone, which I have totally taken. It includes codeine. It's over the counter. Feels pretty wild. To be honest, I wish I have had some Brone in the last few weeks. Dustin and I have definitely reminisced about how Brone would be just what we needed as we were coughing the night away. Anyway, you're encouraged to just take some medicine, possibly that has codeine in it, wear a mask, and keep on working because a cold isn't seen as serious. And I have to say, 
reading that sort of planted that idea in my head that we should never take a day off for a mere cold, which in retrospect is some horrible hustle culture capitalist bullshit. But I definitely gaslit myself into believing that for years. Not that I judged other people for taking off for a cold because I was very sympathetic, but that I couldn't let myself take off work for a cold. And you know what? I'm here to tell you that a cold is miserable and not taking some time to rest will make you sicker for longer. And you should 100% rest if you have the ability to do so. And if you have a friend or a loved one, a family member, what have you in your life who has a cold but can't take a break because of their kids or other obligations they have, please, please do what you can to help them so they can go lie down seriously. Let's, let's help each other out. Okay, well, I don't normally talk about colds around here because this is not a healthcare podcast, uh, nor does it want to be. So I'm going to shift gears here, and I'm going to remind you of the upcoming audio essay series. From no miniskirts after 30 to cut your hair short at some mysterious age, we are swimming in a sea of style rules around age, gender, size, and lifestyle that are frankly bullshit, just like not taking time off when you have a cold, also bullshit. Yet we've been exposed to them for so long that we don't know that they're bullshit. I posted about this on Instagram last week, and I was so excited to see so many strong feelings that aligned with mine because I had just seen a bunch of women complaining on Reddit about women not dressing their age, which for me is like nails on a chalkboard. Instant cringy rage. It's interesting to me, and well, interesting being an understatement, really infuriating to me, that women are old for more of their lives than they are young, which right there, say that out loud, the rules we have around age are pretty fucked up. I had an assistant at my previous job that was just a complete nightmare, and she loved to insult me from what I was cooking for dinner to what I was wearing to whatever, and it's interesting to me because, you know, I was her boss. Anyway, she was always criticizing me about dressing my age, which is just such a gross, antiquated idea. And it's all wrapped up in ageism, the male gaze, and policing women's bodies, right? Some of us have been dressing like meemaws since we were teenagers. Others are having the audacity to wear a miniskirt at 50. And who cares? We should wear what we like what makes us feel the most comfortable and confident. And the same goes for that idea that only people of a certain size can wear certain things. I've told you about the stylist at my last job who said it was hard to make things look good on a size 8 or 10 model. Imagine saying that out loud in front of a whole group of other people in a professional setting or otherwise. The thing is, people will keep saying really offensive antiquated, frankly, misogynist stuff like this if we don't counteract the narrative by being loud about how we feel. Unfortunately, our silence or lack of pushback on comments and thinking like that is seen as an agreement, even if we don't agree. See also any other fucked up, racist, classist, ableist, homophobic, transphobic, fatphobic comment that comes out of someone else's mouth. If we stay silent, that person saying it assumes that we agree. So it's time to get loud about how we feel. 
I want to hear from you. What is a style rule that you're glad to break? What was your journey to realizing that your style was personal and nothing to do with someone else's rules and opinions? Or conversely, are you fearful of breaking the rules and why? Tell us about your relationship with how you dress. Okay, what is an audio essay? It's a recording you make either using your phone or your computer. You email it to me at amanda at closehorse.world and I edit and mix it and add it to an episode. I will not accept written essays for this. I recommend that you write it all out, then record it. It's okay if you make a mistake while you're recording. Just say that part again and keep talking. That's the ticket. Don't stop. Don't start over. Just keep going. I say this as a person who has to record myself talking all the time. It always works out better that way. I will edit out any mistakes when I put it in the episode. Record in a quiet room away from fans, air conditioners, air horns, bus stops, shrieking, cat fighting, what have you. The deadline for this project is April 15th. I've extended it a few weeks, so you have some more time to get it done. And your recording should be anywhere from three minutes to 10 minutes long. Let's get louder than the bad players out there. I think you're going to be surprised when you speak up by how many other people are feeling the same way. They're just staying quiet because they don't know that silence just perpetuates bad ideas and situations. Something most of you might not know about me is that I actually studied painting in college. How I ended up in fashion is a whole other, much longer story. For me, there is nothing more relaxing and enjoyable than cozying up to some canvas or some really nice watercolor paper with a brush and paint. For me, the act of painting is almost meditative. I always feel fresh and ready to conquer anything when I finish. And my favorite subject matter, just on a personal level, is painting portraits of other people. In fact, I would say my number one artistic influence is 20th century portrait artist Alice Neal. Go check her out. Her son's made an incredible documentary about her. It makes me cry every time I watch it. Five stars. Whether your style is more Alice Neal, Jackson Pollock, or that raccoon on Instagram that paints, you know who I'm talking about, there is something so magical about taking some time to yourself to move paint around with a brush. But you know what's not magical? Tracking down those supplies. It feels like such a super unfun errand. And half the time, you can't find what you're looking for because these days, art supply stores are a disappearing breed. Fortunately, proud close horse sponsor Let's Make Art makes it easy with amazing products and tutorials for you so you can focus on the good part learning and making art. Let's Make Art is a revolutionary crafting company that aims to help everyone channel their inner artist, whether they're 3, 63, or 103, by delivering great art supplies and kits directly to your front door. You don't have to spend four years at art school to enjoy painting, but I know that getting started can be intimidating. What kind of brushes should you buy? Never mind paper, pens, paints, and so on. The first time I walked into an art supply store, I was simultaneously excited and really freaked out. What if I chose the wrong thing? What if I embarrassed myself at the checkout by trying to mix acrylics and oils? Would the salespeople laugh at me after I walked out of the store? 
mortifying. Fortunately, Let's Make Art offers a monthly art box that includes supplies and tutorials, including free lessons from in-house artists. That helps you make some magic of your own with paint. And if you're already a great master, Let's Make Art has plenty to offer you too, with a well-curated assortment of paints, brushes, and other supplies. I'm an oil painter first, but my other two favorite media are gouache and ink, and Let's Make Art has a great selection of those, along with watercolor, acrylic, watercolor pencils, another personal favorite, and so much more. If you're feeling stuck about what to paint happens to all of us, Let's Make Art has got you covered with an assortment of pre-assembled kits for painting landscapes, animals, and just generally beautiful things. They also, these kits, they make great gifts. What else? Let's Make Art offers supplies, kits, and tutorials for watercolor painting, lettering, all kinds of other things, including kits for kids ages 5 to 11. There's nothing better than watching them use their own imagination and feel the joy of creating something of their very own. It's a pretty great gift as well. Let's make art simple together. Check out Let's Make Art today by going to my special link, zen.ai slash clotheshorse. I'll be sharing that in the show notes, of course. That's zen.ai slash clotheshorse to get 20% off. The coupon code is activated at checkout. All right, everyone. Are you ready to meet Leia? I have to tell you that this is the first time... (laughs) feel very legit now that I had to use the censorship bleep on the show, you know, like an episode of Jerry Springer. And I did that to cover up the name of the, to be honest, pretty terrible fast fashion retailer that employed both of us in the past. It made me feel very professional. So anyway, just had to point that out. Get ready. Your ears are in for a treat or not treat. Let's jump right into this conversation because we're going to talk about a lot of stuff. See you on the other side. Leah, why don't you introduce yourself to everyone? Hi, everyone. I am Leia Levitt. I run Seedling Vintage LLC. It is currently an online retail vintage shop. Um, I was born in the 80s and grew up in the 90s, where consumerism seemed to be at its highest. Oh, yeah, for sure. (laughs) I I, I mean, like, I've done so much reading about where consumerism (laughs) picked up, and it, it really started in the middle of the last century. But I feel like people who are like, oh, like, we can, we're so consumery now. I'm like, we were in the 90s, too. We just didn't yeah. have, like, smartphones and exactly. as many gadgets, you know? Yeah, I think um, I was actually reading something about when consumerism started. And after World War II was basically when everyone was like, okay, here, we're selling this type of life to you in the mid-century. <laughs> and this is what you need. And you have to have all these gadgets and do all these different things and have this car. And, you know, from there, it just ballooned. And, like, it was okay to have more than you actually needed. And, um, I mean, I just remember growing up in that way where my parents were using paper plates and throwing them out instead of, you know, just washing a dish, which is so easy. And it was just about this convenience thing instead of Mm -hmm. just realizing that it's not a good thing. I mean, we're just contributing to more and more garbage so gosh the paper plates thing you just like unlocked all these memories of me of my mom being like well I don't feel like washing dishes tonight, exactly so we're gonna use paper plates and plastic <laughs> utensils and oh my when, god 
I think about the amount of trash we would put out every mm-hmm. week. Like I'm horrified. Oh, I'm horrified my by that. Yeah, and we've all we were all part of it, right? Like everything was yeah. so disposable. It's so crazy because like when you when I think of it now, like I've always had this anxiety about it. Like I remember at one point in my life, maybe being like 7 or 8 years old, me and my sister decided to start this like club that was called the Save the World Club and it was all about <laughs> like what we could do in the house. We used to have little meetings in a room underneath our staircase Love and it. we had our parents um <laughs> adopt two manatees for us um and we would try our best to basically just remind our parents what we can do to you know make it better and not have as much waste but um you know I grew up in that same that mentality where you know both my parents were working at night they worked in the restaurant industry and it was really hard for them to keep up with everything so for them it was just a very easy way of making mm-hmm. sure we are taken care of, but um, not having all the responsibilities of cleaning. Right, so, right. you know, that happens. You know, when I think about disposable items that have, like, really upset me, uh, it's less the paper plates. Still not happy about it. But yeah, It's more, is. and this is, like, a 21st century disposable item, are those face wipes. <laughs> like, I... <gasps> oh, my God. I totally get you. Right? Crazy. crazy. And it's crazy. So we have a Costco membership and we don't buy a lot there because yeah. everything is like plastic wrapped in plastic wrapped in I plastic. Know. But there are a few good things that are like good to get there and mm-hmm. like aren't overpackaged. Like they have these amazing gluten-free ramen noodles. Can't recommend them enough. Anyway, <laughs> one of the things that I always see there are like massive packages of like Neutrogena face wipes. And I just like, for some reason, that one is like triggering to me where I'm like... <laughs> my God, like, all you need to do is just use a washcloth. Like, why are these are wrapped in plastic, wrapped in plastic, and then trash. Like, it's just, and we've been sold them as, like, a great idea. And I know people are using them and clogging up toilets and all kinds of other things. I just, like, I, I, I would like us to all go protest outside of the Neutrogena corporate offices because I can't take it anymore. They need to go away. And not only that, but I feel like the chemicals that are in them are probably terrible for your skin on top of that. Oh, for sure. It's They're like, so perfumey. It's you not know? good for you. Yeah. So it's so funny because I think at like 27 years old is when I started just not using a lot of makeup, only using natural things to put on my face. Um, and just realizing that like what I'm doing is like affecting how I'm aging. You know, there's always Mm -hmm. a a little bit inside of me that goes, okay, I want to age gracefully. Right. But I obviously don't want to have like crazy wrinkles. Um, so I just started oiling up my face with some natural oil and I was like, okay, I'm going to start going this route with no makeup and this and feel comfortable. Um, but it actually took until gosh, I think the pandemic to fully be comfortable and be like, I'm not going to wear makeup and I'm cool and I'm mm-hmm. letting all my grays come out and everything's okay. But, um, I, you know, I've really minimized like all of those things. Like I don't need those things anymore. I, um, right. I have a little bit of makeup when I really feel as if I need it, but it's just, it's not a part of my life anymore. And also, um, after becoming a mother, I kind of realized like, it's just, it doesn't, I don't need it. You know, it's, it's not necessary, and um, I also want to teach my son, you know, like what we need and what we don't and how to like kind of gauge that. 
and mm -hmm. I don't want him to become this little consumer because it's really easy for him to become like that in a city like New York because oh, it's yeah. thrown at you at every everywhere. corner. Everywhere, yeah. You know, like we, I take him to school, we walk home from school and there's a toy store on the way and it's like every day, oh my God, I want this, I want this. I'm like, okay, we don't need another fire truck. Like, are you kidding me? Stop. Like, stop selling this. We don't need it. And people give us stuff and it makes me crazy. But, uh -huh. um, you know, with him, we uh, actually have never really taken him to go shopping. I've only done thrift store shopping and then I just give it to him and he wears it. So... <laughs> He That's just, great. He's been That's really great. good about it, luckily. But, I mean, he's getting a little bit more of an attitude. So we'll see what happens <laughs> with the future. But he's been yeah. pretty chill so far. Yeah. I mean, I remember my daughter uh, starting second grade and being like, hey, can I get highlights? And I was like, wait, what? What? And they that were like, is. well, everyone at school has highlights. Oh, and I was man. like, in second grade? Anyway, that it's the outside so influences. It's really, really hard. I know, I know. Uh, oh I gosh. think, too, like, I mean, toys, kids' toys and stuff are always so gross and plastic and oh trashy gosh, and disposable. They're, like, instant garbage sometimes. Mm -hmm. They've been especially bad the past few years because there's been all that, like, blind box for children, like, LOL surprise stuff. So just be glad that you oh, haven't had to deal with that gosh, yet. I haven't. Thank You're God. lucky. It's like... A plastic ball with more plastic inside it, oh, and then another plastic, and it's just... Basically just trash on trash. Yeah, it's really, really disturbing. Anyway, now that we've broken down why we hate Neutrogena wipes and all this other exactly. stuff... Exactly. Very important stuff. Let's talk about... So, okay, so you, you know, you are a, a vintage seller now. Yes. You sell secondhand. I mean, yes. w something that I have discovered, I mean, I guess I already knew it because it's a way of life for my husband and me, but mm -hmm. I found that for so many of us, it really is. It's a passion. It's a way of life. Mm -hmm. How did it start for you? Uh, it's kind of interesting. Like I remember being a young child and always telling my parents, I'm going to eventually own an antique shop. Like that was, wow. that was like the one thing that I, I always that. wanted to do because I always had a fascination with everything that was of historical value in my family and where it came from. And I wanted to know all the stories and I didn't have like a lot of, um, grandparents. Like I basically had my mom's father and my dad's mom. And those were like my two like older generation family. Um, so, you know, I wanted to know as much about their things as possible. So because of all of my interest, I would get all of the items from them because I was like the only child or the only cousin or the only grandchild, I mean, that was actually interested in those things. So I have like all my grandma's old stuff and she's told me where it came from. She's given me all these amazing stories about the life they have lived. So I think for me, it was always about the life that it had before and how interesting it is to actually think about these items, you know, being mm -hmm. 70 years old and then like what it's, what it's been through. It's like a person almost. It's like this entity that has like its own life. Um, yeah. So that was kind of like my first thought. And then my sister was a big old skater in the 90s, big skater in the 90s and hung out with the skate crew. And in the 90s, it was very cool 
to just do thrift store shopping, you know, like that's all they did. So my parents were super excited for that point of her life because it was so easy and she would wear whatever, whatever size, and then she would try and dress me up. So she would just like be like, come (laughs) with me and I'll give you like all my hand-me-downs of clothes or like, I want you to look cool like a skater too. So I'm going to give you this and this. So it kind of started with that. And she got me, you know, going with the thrift store at like 12. And then we just went with it. And my mom was like, heck yes. Like everything's working out for us financially. This is great. (laughs) Like a lot better than when you guys went to Contempo Casuals and we had to pay 200 bucks or whatever. So expensive. (laughs) And it was shitty, shitty, but it was... (laughs) Contemporary casual, like uh, when we talk about how cheap fast fashion has gotten now, like y'all don't even understand because (laughs) contemporary casual was like so expensive. I remember I had a part time job where I made like five dollars an hour, not even minimum wage. And like you'd go into Contempo Casual and like a shirt would be like forty dollars. We were like it would be like a whole day of work to buy a shitty Contempo Casual shirt. Not those prices were fair for what they were, right? It's not like now where it's like, oh, that shirt's I don't know, fifteen dollars and it's it's just so unethical and wrong. I don't think those shirts should have been fifteen dollars, but it's just like you don't understand yeah. how expensive Contempo Casual was when you were a teenager. Like, it was so expensive. It was, like, the coolest. And then, like, it Wild was. Pair for shoes. You know, oh. there's, like, those, like, certain places. Oh, my God. <laughs> wild Pair. I'm glad that you brought that up because we had one at our mall, and it was the best shoe store ever. I still stand by that. Um, <laughs> it was always, cool. It was a Wild Pair. It was pair. really cool. It was wild, and they were really cool. They were basically, like, knockoffs of, like, cool shoes, yeah. not of, like like runway shoes or sexy shoes like there were lots of doc martin knockoffs and nana shoes and john flugs and all of that and like they were always having crazy sales i swear yes they Um, were they were always like two for whatever amount because it was a wild pair it was was just like buy one wild pair get another one half off i have no idea like a bogo type of situation and (laughs) the thing about those shoes is that they would last a million years true right so funny when you think about that and i always I always reference that also. It's like the things that I've had, like I've had a pair of Converse for like literally before I moved to New York and I've moved, I've lived in New York for 16 years Oh wow! on and off. I moved a little bit for a while. Um, but it's like, I've had these shoes for 20 years and they're just breaking down now where I'm like, okay, I gotta like retire this pair of shoes. <laughs> I mean, they have been through everything, but now it's like, I buy a pair of, I bought a pair of Converse, which kind of pissed me off because I try not to do that. And immediately, like, the rivet fell off. Like, the day I freaking wore it. Like, the first day. The rivets are the first to go. And (laughs) I agree. I feel like I had the same pair of sneakers for, like, all of high school Mm -hmm. and college. And now if I buy, in the rare occasion that I buy, like, Converse or a pair of Vans or something, Mm -hmm. they don't even make it a year. It's terrible. It's terrible. terrible. I mean, it's a fast fast fashionification of everything. You know, know. it's almost like there is a marketing strategy to make things. Well, I think it's also it's fast fashion because it's going to be cheaper to make. Right. But there's Mm -hmm. also probably a marketing strategy behind that that makes it like, okay, well, it's going to break down anyway. And then I'll have to buy another one. Mm -hmm. So there you go. (laughs) It's just the way it is. It's getting worse and worse. It it is. It is. That's planned obsolescence. That's a real thing. 100%. And if it's like 
if we can't make the product fall apart soon and you need to buy a new one, then we'll just like make it seem out of date and useless. Like, for example, iPhones, you know, like that's a big example of planned obsolescence where if you like I'm one of those people who tries to hold on to my phone for as Mm -hmm. long as possible. And the last year or two that I own it is like arduous and stressful Mm -hmm. where I'm like, sorry, I can only use one app at a time or I have to keep it (laughs) constantly plugged in or, you know. (laughs) <laughs> I had that for like a really long time. Me so too. I'm, I'm going to go on another small journey into a moment where I actually moved away from New York with my husband to South America. Uh-huh. And that also was a great learning experience. But on the phone situation down there, it was like, you're still using flip phones. You yeah. were like still in the 70s and 80s there. You're repairing stuff. You are buying secondhand like there are cobblers there are people you know repairing televisions and radios and phones and everything and it's not about like the biggest and bestest and everything it's just about like having what you need so that was definitely a learning experience when it came to like coming back to the states because I came back when it was like getting crazier with the iPhones and I didn't Uh. have one yet And I was like, holy crap, like, it's almost impossible to have a job here unless I have one. It was like, I kind of had to be plugged in in that way. And it actually fucking sucked because I was really trying to put off getting those types of things. Um, But yeah, I feel you. I've always been trying to keep keep a low profile with those. But it's just it's like they force you because they They do upping. They do. How much memory you need on them, I think it's what the deal is. Yeah, it's really, really frustrating. I mean, and the other thing, you know, with fast fashion is like the clothes are going to fall apart anyway. Yeah. So you probably need to get some new ones, but they might not. But that's okay because there'll be a new trend that you feel like you have that will like go out of style like a month later and then you'll feel embarrassed wearing it. So, so that's crazy. another that's another example of planned obsolescence. Anyway, okay. So speaking of fast fashion and planned obsolescence and mm-hmm. all kinds of evil stuff, you and I both worked for the same fast fashion company. Yes, we did. Uh, <laughs> you worked there for, how long did you work for them? Almost five years, I believe. I was pretty young when I started. I feel like I might have been seven, no, like 18, no, 20. I think I was 20 when I started there. Yeah. So early 2000s. So how did that shape your feelings about fashion, style, fast fashion, retail, all that stuff? What is so interesting about that company that we both know is that (laughs) um, there was a lot of appeal to working there because there was very interesting people that Mm -hmm. work there. There was very educated, artistic, um, cool people that worked in that environment. And the funniest part to me about working there was no one usually wore the, wore the clothes that much. It's Most so true. Actually would wear more, vi- well, at least in New York for me, when I, I started in Seattle and then I moved to New York with the company. And I noticed in New York and Seattle, actually, that most people actually wore vintage like we'd have like vintage come into the store sometimes and most people would be like going for that, you know, trying to get that because as much as, you know, this, the clothing tried to be individualistic and kind of mimic vintage or try and be a little bit cooler than these other brands, it still was fast fashion. So we were Mm -hmm. all trying to still have like our artsy individualistic, like 
personalities there. As far as like how it shaped my view of fast fashion, um, I started as an associate for that company in Seattle. Worked at the downtown store there. Uh, met a lot of really cool people. Met a boyfriend. Uh, we ended up moving to New York together. I was just turning 21. Um, and then I slowly moved up the manager ladder. And that's when you kind of get more of the inside of the back end of things. Um, and you're using the systems and kind of seeing, I mean, how much <laughs> quantity you're seeing of all these items coming into different totally. stores and also the markup and how much they're getting them yeah. for. And it was just like kind of crazy to see all these numbers, you know, and to, mm-hmm. to realize like what was happening. And it just felt like a machine. And I started to get pretty depressed after a certain period of time because of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I hear you. I hear you on that. It's really hard. Like, you know, you and I, when we were preparing for this conversation, we talked about how, like, yeah, you could go back, you could get on the green screen, which yes, was literally a green computer screen. from like the 80s, right? Oh, 100%. Yeah. And like you could look up first off like, oh, my God, we ordered 10,000 units Mm -hmm. of this thing or that it cost four dollars. We were selling it for 40. I mean, it was exactly it was really, really crazy. When I moved from the retail side of that to the home office side to work as a buyer, I couldn't believe how cheap some of the stuff was that we were buying uh like for example we talked we talked in a previous episode about this scarf that you're gonna be totally familiar with it's called it was called the striped nubby with lurex right (laughs) oh my god right so that was one of the categories i bought and that was like (laughs) that scarf was like i want to say two dollars and some change and we sold it for 20 24 i remember it was like 24 i think it was like 24 got snagged on everything was oh my god it's terrible it's terrible we would always have to what did we have to do when things got broke we had to like zero them out or something yeah yeah damage them out damage them out yeah i damaged so many of those fuckers out and i have to say sorry i'm swearing now um, that's okay. <laughs> as far as like, okay, so I was never a manager of accessories at the point when I was working there, we had managers for every different department. I don't know how it works now. Um, I didn't do accessories management. I was like women's operations, different things like that. But I remember just always the most waste was in accessories. They oh. would just break like no one's business. Totally, totally. It was well, insane. So I have, I've been a, for that company, a manager of all the departments except for men's. And when then I moved, you know, to the home office and the the categories I was buying initially were at women's accessories. And I couldn't believe like a lot of the jewelry and hair clips and things like that mm-hmm. were like a dollar. Yeah. You know, the sunglasses had the highest markup of any category, I want to say. Oh, and a I lot remember of them, seeing that. Yeah, yeah. And once again, those were like $1 to $2, and we were selling them for like 20 And mm-hmm. they were they were crap. Oh, they, they were, were shit. They were total shit. I would go to, I mean, like real talk, and this is the mm-hmm. way it is for the entire industry. You know, you think of some place like Forever 21 as like selling you like the lowest of the low when it comes to like accessories mm-hmm. and stuff. We were buying our stuff from the same vendors. Yeah. And that's like, sorry to interrupt, but that's like the funny part about it is that people don't realize that <laughs> no. what 
Forever 21 in the company we're talking about, the only difference is that we dressed it up. We made it look... Exactly. Oh, my God. That, Fucking cooler. You know, we made it look really fucking cool. We had cool people working there, and that was the only difference. That was the only difference. It's like, that was what it was. And it's kind of insane, because before, when I was working there, I didn't really grasp it as much, because I was so young. But then when I finally quit and went to school, it was it just kind of, it started to come to me, you know, I started to understand it. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It definitely, it's, I mean, this is what the entire industry is, you know, and I started close works because a lot of people don't know that it's all mm -hmm. the same. It's just better marketing. Exactly. Cool marketing. Cooler marketing. Yeah. So, You decided to go to school for interior design and architecture. Yes. So I left the store we're talking about because I was getting up there in status or like, you know, management. And I really didn't want to get stuck. Mm -hmm. I knew if I got to a certain point, which I was at that point, I was at the $10 million store, the biggest store of the whole company at that point. Mm -hmm. And I was a women's manager managing 25 people. It was crazy. I mean, our sell-through was like unbelievable. Our back stock was a fucking football field. We had one person dedicated (laughs) every day to just freaking organizing it because in the morning to like replenish was just incredible because we used to print out these whole like you know list of what we sold through right and then you try and pull what you can from what art we have and it was just insane I would just be throwing things like on piles like let's get this out you know like come on like we we had like I mean literally we'd stack shirts like 40 high like it's like we gotta do this it's gonna go crazy when we open the doors yeah Um, you know like freaking out about it but um Sorry, I went off a tangent there. Um, But yeah, like I just kind of got to a point where I was like, this is crazy. And the raises I was giving to people, I just felt really like mad about it. You know, I just felt shitty because it's, you know, I was the messenger for so many people to give them their, their raises. And I didn't think it was enough. And I didn't think it was um, livable for New York. Number one, I wasn't, I was, you know, just making it in New York as a manager of like a high, I mean, high status store. So if I wasn't making it like, I mean, how are they? So it was just totally so crazy to me to be that messenger. And, uh, I just got to the point where I was just fed up. I was like, I can't go any further because I know they're going to end up promoting me. And because I was doing a good job and I didn't want to get promoted and get stuck. So that was when I was like, okay, we're, we got like a, we got a really good bonus. We made stretch bonus that year. We had three bonus categories. That's like a major bonus. It was freaking crazy. Cause like, that's like rare that it happens. So I told myself if it happens, I'm taking the money, I'm going to live and I'm going to go to school. So I did that. I applied, started to applying for school and then, you know. And I got out. Um, But yeah, I went to school for architecture and interior design in New York City in Chelsea at a really good accredited school, Um, paid for it myself, worked full time at a restaurant, went to school full time and full time at that school because it was actually a state run school meant that you weren't just doing art classes. You're also doing core classes. So it was Mm -hmm. like eight classes a semester. It was crazy. 
I was insane, but I had the energy. I was like 26. I could handle it. Um, but then as I was going through the program, it was similar to retail in the way that we were getting samples and it was a lot Mm -hmm. of waste and a lot of the materials were really bad for you. And then I think in my third year of college, they actually started a sustainable class. And then we were learning about all the off gassing Mm -hmm. of a lot of these, um, products that we were initially using. So then it just made me furious Because I loved the idea of what I was doing, but then I was just like, I, I don't know how to fix this and I need to go a way that makes me feel good about what I'm doing. So at the end of the day, I decided to go, um, and go a sustainable route for my thesis that I finished. And, um, that made me feel a lot better about what I was doing. Tell us about your project. Um, so, I mean, it took me a really long time and I have to say at the time it was about 11, 12 years ago when I did my thesis and a lot of people really were pushing back on me doing this thesis that was about, uh, it was like a community art center that also had an urban farm. Oh, wow. Um, And also had a space for people to sell goods, um, to sell um, the farming stuff from the farm that we had inside the building and on top of the roof. Um, There was also, you know, an area that was for a gallery for like local artists. It was supposed to be just kind of like a meeting place for people and not necessarily like a for profit type of thing. Um, so I had a lot of pushback on that from teachers because they're like, this is like not what the industry is like looking for, you know? And I was like, well, I'm not looking for that. I'm looking to fulfill something I need to fulfill, not what Mm -hmm. you think needs to be done. So I wouldn't say that my grade was really amazing when it came to that. I mean, my project was great. I had a lot of information I was really educated on when I wrote my thesis, which was like over a hundred pages. It was like a freaking huge book manual. (laughs) Um, I mean, I really took it seriously, all the information and I, I really loved it. And I think that's what eventually parlayed me into vintage, Mm -hmm. but I did have a little break between my thesis and going into vintage. Let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep Clothes Horse going via their generous Patreon support. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. 
Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. And that's Gabriella with one L. Gotta get that spelling right. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in Western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios, all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. Now you sell vintage. So like, what's the step in between? What happened? Yeah. So, um, you know, I was like, I'm going to go that like totally normal route, like the nine to five job. I'm going to do it because I've never really done that. I've always worked like multiple jobs. I've always done like a little restaurant work here or a little retail or a little this or a little that. I've always just 
I think I have a bit of ADD, so I'm always like want to do something and always want to have variety or I get really bored. <laughs> so I, um, I was gone for a little bit of time with my husband in South America after I got married and I came back to New York and said, hey, I have a son now. I'm going to get a nine to five job. I'm going to do it. So I randomly um, wasn't really even looking. And I feel like this is what always happens in New York. It's like, you know, someone that knows something that mm-hmm. just gets you a job. So my husband had a good skate buddy that had just moved back from Miami to New York. And he worked at this experiential design company. And um, he came over and was talking and he he asked me what I was doing. And I was like, oh, you know, I'm actually looking for something for, you know, that's in architecture or maybe technical drawing or maybe, I don't know, in design or something. He's like, well, actually, they're looking for a technical drafter at this company I'm working at. And I was like, really? Well, I don't know if I want to do it, but I might as well try. Like, what's why not? right. Right. Why not just see if it works out? So I emailed the girl and, um, you know, she saw my portfolio and then I had a, um, I had a meeting with her and I actually, it's so funny. I had the meeting with her. I walk in and this guy that actually worked for corporate, which I think you might know as well. I'm not going to say his name, um, was in the meeting as well and, I didn't actually know him personally, but we were discussing like pers- other jobs and he's like, oh my gosh, I used to work at corporate, blah, blah, blah. And it was just really funny. So we all connected really well. And then the girl's boyfriend that was actually going to be giving me the job if I was to pass the interview process um, ended up being an old friend from the retail industry. <laughs> so he what? was one of the guys that built out um, the environments in the spaces for this retail company that we've been talking about. So that was really funny because he didn't have social media or anything. I had no idea he worked for the company. It just ended up being like this kind of kismet thing that it all kind of went full circle. And this was like 16 years after I'd worked with him, you know, and we just gave each other a hug and I was like, this is crazy. Like, I guess it's meant to be, you know? Mm -hmm. So it felt really, awesome at first. I felt like, hey, I belong here. A lot of people from that old job actually work there in this corporate environment. And I go, well, if they're doing it, I, I'm sure I can manage this as well. Yeah. Um, so I started and, you know, being a technical drafter is different than being a designer because you're not really on calls with clients. You're not really pitching the ideas. You're actually the person that is receiving after the pitch is done and after they have already signed the contract. So I was the person that was just given the information of, okay, this is what we're doing. And now we have to go measure the space and now we have to build it. And you have to get all of these technical drawings to the different departments, like um, the lighting department, the carpenters, the metal work, the paint department. So I would have to do these um, large drawing sets that were very detailed, have 3D drawings. It exploded versions of these 3D drawings to show how they're put together. And then a lot of details, like very, very, very very detailed stuff, like eighth of an inch between this and this, you know, like crazy things. Mm -hmm. So it was very detail oriented, which I loved, but I was also like on my own island. I was listening to headphones all day long and it just felt crazy because I would 
be working and then all of a sudden have five minutes of anxiety just thinking about life and what the fuck I'm doing. Whoa, I know the feeling know? too well. Yeah. And like, <laughs> what the fuck am I doing in front of this computer? My eyes are hurting. My neck is hurting. I'm having a headache. I'm having like a stroke. Like, I don't know what's going on. And then I'd have to get up and walk around and just think about it. And um, this kept happening over and over and over again. And I'm just thinking to myself, I'm fighting fighting this part of me that doesn't want to be there just because I think this is the right thing to do. And, um, you know, it's funny because I was just going to stay there and just fight it. And I think it would have broken my soul and my spirit at some point. And what happened was COVID. And I don't Mm want to make that a light, but in some way it was. Because for me, they ended up furloughing me from that job twice So I was working, I got furloughed at the beginning of COVID. Then I worked for them. Then I got, I'm sorry. I was working remotely, furloughed, working remotely, furloughed, then finally let go. It was just like a freaking crazy train. I got to tell you of emotions. I cried so much. I'm like, you guys are screwing with me. I have a five-year-old. Like don't F with my insurance, please. You guys. Um, so it was crazy, but then I realized like, this is a blessing in disguise. Like this is Mm -hmm. giving me the opportunity to figure out what's going to make me happy and a way to kind of be at home more and not be in the office, like almost six days a week. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, like that is what definitely was the change that drove me into vintage as you're talking about like the furlough thing. I mean, for me, I got furloughed for three months and then Mm -hmm. every time it was time for me to go back to work, like my boss would put a last minute meeting on my calendar that was in Mm -hmm. one hour. And I was like, Mm -hmm. now I'm going to be laid off today. And it'd be like, no, we're extending your furlough another month. Yes. And this kept happening. And I was like, I'm not going back to this job. Like I can tell. Right. But I I, like, we couldn't move out of the city or move on Mm -hmm. with our lives. Cause it was like, well, I might go back to this job. We can't make any decisions. And then every month that last minute meeting, like, oh, it's 9am. We're having a meeting at 10. Mm -hmm. Like my heart pounding for an hour. Uh, Mm -hmm. Then I I finally got let go. And I was just like, what a fucking relief. Like, I I, know, right? I just don't need it anymore. I need that freedom to move on. I hated that job. I was very unhappy there, but I was so, you know how it is. You're like, it's, it's hard to leave anywhere. Yeah. It is. Because it's scary, right? I just needed that freedom to just go do it. Not that I'm like, thanks for laying me off and cutting off my insurance and giving me two weeks of severance during a global pandemic. Oh, that's all I got, too. I got two weeks of severance. How nice, right? Yeah, yeah. I also got like, they were like, and you get five extra days of health insurance. Wow. Thanks, guys. Oh, my God. I actually haggled the hell out of them and really made them feel guilty. Luckily, they were kind of nice people. And I was like, listen, you need (laughs) to give me five months of insurance because I have a son. This is a pandemic and I will not accept anything less and I will keep bugging you until you do it. So they did, which was awesome. I haggled that part, but it was just, you know, that was a good thing. And I felt okay for a little while. And then it was stressful when I didn't have insurance again. Um, oh yeah. gosh. And that's another, I, I don't even want to get into that subject, but seriously, we're working for insurance. It's just ridiculous. We're working to pay off debt. We're working for insurance. We're working for like the wrong reasons. <sighs> it, it's it's true. It's true. I mean, I am like, can we, I don't, so many of us are stuck 
in yeah. bad situations because of that. Like when I hear boomers on social media or in like the comment yeah. section of a New York Times article being like, well, if you're such a special snowflake, why don't you go find another job? And I'm like, fuck you. It's you so have no idea. Yeah, you have no idea. Like if I leave this Ugh. job, I'm not going to have insurance. I worked as director of merchandising, like leadership level for yeah. a, a company in the Pacific Northwest that didn't even give me health insurance. Like Fuck. I was working a gazillion hours a week, a very important employee. We did not yeah. have health insurance. And so That's like, crazy. It, it's a crazy, that company is terrible. Anyway, the point is like, we are, you know, like we work in this time where we're stuck to these jobs because yeah. not because we love them, not because even necessarily we're in an abusive relationship with them and can't get out of them. <laughs> it it's almost like, feels like it is. It almost feels like it. It's like, <laughs> I need health insurance. I need a steady paycheck. I need a place to live. Yeah. I have to pay off my school debt. Like, uh-huh. it's it's so frustrating to me because then we have absolutely no leverage when it comes to negotiation because they know at our core we are desperate to have this job. I know. And I think that's what's funny about it is that when I was haggling, I kind of told myself, no this is going to happen. So like I had this mindset where like, no, I'm going to make them do like not make them, but I was like, no, I'm going to make this as important as possible and make this as human as possible. Because I thought to myself, I go, we're humans. Like they need to understand this is a human thing. It's not about them. It's not about like work. It's about the fact that I need to make sure I'm taking care of my family because I didn't mention this before, but my husband's a freelance photographer. So like he's never had insurance. So I was Mm, like the main provider of insurance. So that was like the main thing that was really difficult is that I was like that steady person with a steady income. So (sighs) it made it even harder, you know? Yeah, no, to- I, I I hear you. It's it's really, really hard. And so something you told me about what I actually was thinking of you last week because last week I went to a trade show in Vegas. Oh, well, thank you. I went, I went to Magic <laughs> and I was thinking of you as I was looking at all of the booths because, you know, you worked in experiential design, which is not something a lot of people know about or would understand. So can you explain a little bit what that is? Okay. So I found a really simple way of explaining it to friends. Okay. um, Or just anyone. I finally was like, I'm going to break this down. It's basically marketing using architecture. Mm, I like that. So that's like the best way I can explain it in very simple terms. We were using architecture to market for different companies. But the thing about that, it's not like you're building out an apartment. You're building out a a space for maybe four hours, maybe a day, maybe a week. You know, it's like, that's what was soul sucking about it. (laughs) It Yeah. So sad, (laughs) you know? And what was crazy too, is I had a lot of insight during that job of like what materials we use. Like I would specify like three quarter inch MDF, which is so fucking poisonous. Yeah. Or, you know, three quarter inch plywood, which is not super sustainable. And the same with MDF. It was just like so frustrating. And on the sustainable note, we did try to start a sustainable like um, group there. And the best they came up with was a sustainable product that was shipped from China on a boat. And I was just like, this isn't sustainable. Like, you're basically canceling it out. Like, you're telling me that it's coming from a boat from China 
and you're telling me it's sustainable. Like that doesn't, that doesn't work out. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. not the same thing. And like, they were so pushed back on it because it was just so hard for them to get away from the way they've done things. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, they didn't yeah. want to change it, the process. It was just very frustrating. And I was like, you know what? I can't be involved in this anymore. Like I can't be involved in your meetings anymore about sustainability because you're not even listening to anything I'm saying, you know? Uh, at yeah. All. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so I was like, you know, thinking about you last week when I was at magic, because there, there are some really elaborate booths there mm-hmm. that, People came in and worked really hard to build. They used a ton of materials. Yeah. And these were going to be up for three days and then torn down. And yep. I can't even imagine what the dumpster behind oh. the convention center is like at the end of the week. It was so depressing. I did this one stand, and I, I don't know if I showed you the photo of it, but um, it was for a very famous shoe brand that a lot of us know was very popular in the 90s. Um, it was super cool design, and if it was staying up for a really long time, I would be like, this is awesome, and I'd love to show everyone, but it was also for a convention that was, like, three days, um, but it was not only, like, just the walls. We made, like, these fake mountain-type things on top, so it was just, I mean, oh, my God, I think it was, like, over 100 MDF panels. Oh, my God. with... Or 100 or 200. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I think it was like 180 MDF panels. And then we have <sighs> to frame them out so they're not like, you know, um, so they're stable. So you have to frame out the back of those. It was just a waste on the top of waste on top of waste. Oh. And then just shit bought from Amazon to like fucking decorate. It was, oh my God, so depressing. Um, that was one of those projects I go, this was cool. And it looked so cool in my portfolio once it was done and the pictures looked beautiful, but then I'm just like, not super proud of it, you know, because it's dead and gone. And then when you talk to like the people that are actually on site, um, that work as project managers and are dealing with the dumpsters, they're, you know, ordering a dumpster company. And I kept telling them, Hey, you guys, if it's a local New York thing, there's actually a lot of like, there's this like a uh, local network that will, um, if you post on there and say, Hey, we have free flats and flats are what they call like basically a fake wall. Mm-hmm. So we would make a lot of those and those were standard sizes, which was like a four by eight, which is basically what a standard size for plywood is or MDF, right? Mm-hmm. And we would make a lot of those and a lot of people would want to use them for like set design or whatever. And so like there's a whole network here that shares stuff like that. And they were so pushing back on me, like helping them with that. And I was like, why is it that hard? We just post one post and they'll come get it. You right. Know? It's, it's so, it was just so crazy to me. They're like, no, we'd rather just throw it away. It's just easy. <laughs> I just oh, couldn't God. handle it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's ridiculous. So, so now you sell vintage. Yes. Um, and you do that full, well, you, I know you have another job too, but. Yeah, I can tell you a little bit about both. Where do you want sure. me to start? I, pick, pick what feels right. Okay, so um, I'll start with the second job. So I have a job right now that I have worked for four and a half years. Um, It's at a local boutique hotel that is actually quite sustainable, which I always found very lovely about them. Yeah. Um, 
and makes my heart like very happy because I know the owner pretty well or one of the owners and he's great. His family's great. He's like, he saw me unpackaging something the other day, just for example, uh-huh. and was like, oh my God, they wrap that in plastic. Oh my God. Yeah. And I love that. I was that. like, I love you right now. Cause he's yeah. just like this he's like a very like kind soul and he's very quiet and calculated and just like, he's a real person and I feel like he really cares, you know? And it it was just so nice to see him say that. I was like, I know Peter or well, whatever I'll say his name. You can bleep it if you want, but you don't know his last name. (laughs) So Um, Peter's fine. (laughs) Yeah. Peter. I was like, Oh, I know it's crazy. But then we realize it's cause like sometimes it travels through hot places. So it's like, so it doesn't melt cause it's a Mm, candle. Yeah. So we're like, Oh, there's some ways, like some things you can't prevent. Um, but you know, they use biodegradable stuff for most things. They used to compost everything. And we also do a lot of waste management as far as food goes, because I work for events. Mm. So in events, there can be huge waste, but, um, we work with chefs now, which wasn't in the past like this, um, that actually are really working hard and striving to be, as good as they can possibly be to make sure that like everyone's eating everything. And it's so lovely to see how little comes back to the kitchen. Um, Because I'm uh, usually the expo person. I'm like part of the management basically. And Mm -hmm. I do a lot of the expo and I work with a lot of the kitchen. I just love doing it because it's very high pressure. So I do a good job. Um, And I just love that he's a part of that because I also time out when I'm sending things to make sure nothing's coming back with full plates and it's just great like I love that part of it um but I did work there while I was working at the experiential design company because I have this like ultimate fear I will be poor and lose my job Mm -hmm. it's just who I am I don't know where it comes from I've not been homeless my mom was homeless at one point and she's told me terrible stories So I feel like I just have this, like, you know how they say sometimes uh, the energy of, like, your ancestors can come through you? Yeah, (laughs) I feel like my ancestors' anxieties have, like, really come through me and just, like, have gotten watered down through the generations, but it is, like, full on. Um, Just on that track really fast, I met my half-sister during COVID. My mom gave up for adoption when she was younger. Wow. And it was amazing because it shows how much that actually is true because we were discussing stuff and she's so much like my mother and the anxiety Ah. part and the like stress and the way she reacts to things and the way she deals with things. And I'm going, Oh my God, there really is like something in these genetics that does this to us. Um, Sorry. Went on tangent there. No, but it's true. um, It's true. It's really interesting. Like when I saw her, I I was like, we were just connected immediately. And I was like, I feel you. I feel you. Like, I mean, we talk about anxiety a lot. I'm like, oh my gosh, I feel it too. So, you know, you live in New York. It's like, it still is a rat, you know, it's a rat race. Like literally, I mean, it's, I moved here so young and I was lucky to have jobs and I was always lucky to be a very social person and a pretty, I'm pretty good at reading people. So I'm also very good at like adapting to other people's personalities and understanding what they kind of need from me. 
Um, which is good and kind of bad because it's very like draining for me to be that type of person because I'm like expelling a lot of my own energy to like deal with them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it has brought a lot of opportunities to me. Vintage is your main job, right? Uh, it's about a half and half right now. Um, yeah. Okay, that's pretty good though. It's kind of, it's a weird situation because I definitely have, I mean like a decent amount of sales, you know? I feel like it's good, but I still like, I still feel it's not there yet. You know, I know it's right. not there yet. Cause I've obviously worked in retail. I get it. Like I get how things work and you're still buying, but you're spending, you know, you're buying, you're selling, but you're replenishing, you know, it's like, you're not like right. at always like the best point. Um, mm-hmm. So that can be a little bit stressful. So my other job definitely is like more of the bill payer, but I am growing the other business slowly and steady. Um, just through talking to people. And I have to say, like, the vintage community is, like, I'm going to describe it as, like, kind of meeting my tribe. Um, Because, in a way, the vintage community is different than other, um, I guess, like, retailers or other, like, businesses. Because you're selling the same type of product, but you all have different items, right? So you can Mm -hmm. be really supportive of other people and share their items and help them out and they help you out because you guys all have different things. It's vintage. You know, you're finding different items. So I feel like there's a lot of like community support there, which is really lovely. I don't find a lot of negativity yet. I haven't found it yet. Hopefully I don't. Um, I've had a lot of good people on my side, but we'll see, you know, when you get bigger and bigger, we'll... Can get worse. Um, <laughs> True like a bad story. relationship, or just, you know, if you're famous, like my friend is a singer and she always tells me, she's like, you gotta prepare for the bad. You gotta know who's your friend. Yeah. Um, because yeah. as you get bigger, you don't know because people just wanna be around you for your energy. So, yeah, it's so weird. Make sure but it's you're true. paying attention to that. Um, yeah. But yeah, so that's always. You know, it's been a near and dear thing to me because I I feel good about what I'm doing versus feeling bad about what I'm doing. So the stress that I used to have has just gone down like halfway, you know, the anxiety almost gone. So many things are changing in my body. I just feel better, healthier. That's great. You know, it's, it's almost like it's so true. Like I was actually I'm about to read this book about mind body connection and how it's mm-hmm. it really is so important, like how you're treating yourself and how you're speaking about yourself and what you are passionate about and what gives you life and breath, you know, is so important to like, like to grow. So you have to you have to love what you're doing. You know, you have to be, you know, an advocate for what you're doing to like make sure that you continue to grow in a good way in a you know, a way that actually, you know, makes you feel good. I love that. I think that's so true. I mean, for anything you're working on, right? I think like it goes back to our conversation about being kind of stuck at your job because of, you know, health insurance, money, all these reasons and how you're like stuck in this situation that's actually bad for your physical health. Yeah. I think because you need health care, you know, (laughs) like what? (laughs) Yeah, I know. And that was like the saddest thing to me because I had such good health care with that job. It was like, I mean, 
at the other job we worked, the retail company, it couldn't even compare to that, you know? Oh, no, it was terrible. It got worse every year. It was so bad. I was like, how is this so bad? This is a big, like, it's becoming bigger and bigger. Like, how are we not, why are our co-pays so big? Why am I, like, paying this much when I go here? Um, So I had really good health care there. And it was like, I paid for my whole family and I was able to do that. And we had great health care. I had, like, the, the top tier, you know, we could go to anyone, so that was definitely mm-hmm. sad to leave, but I think, you know, we, we found our, our like healthcare through New York state and, um, you know, we pay for our dental visits. I'm like, dentist is one thing I don't fuck around with because I went to a dentist one time with my New York healthcare. They fucked up my tooth and I had to get a crown and it was like $2,500. So <sighs> I'm not doing that anymore. I'm just paying for my d- damn health, like dental, you know? So, okay, well, so let's talk about uh, selling vintage. Yeah. How do you source? Because, I mean, we're going to talk about this, but there is this myth out there. Oh, yeah. I actually just released an episode today trying to debunk this myth because I receive so many DMs every week, emails, DMs, comments on Instagram posts about two things. One, resellers are ruining <laughs> secondhand. Because they're getting all the, quote, good stuff. And two, so many people are secondhand shopping right now that there's nothing good left at the store and they're driving up prices. And, like, you and I both know that none of this is true. That's not true. But I just want to hear it from the horse's mouth. Okay. Tell me where you source. So I personally source now from a rag house. So basically Mm. I'm sourcing from a warehouse that receives – stuff that are donated, things that are donated, and they give me good prices on things, you know, and they sort things out and they use the rest to make rags um, for, mm-hmm. I guess, I don't know, maybe, I've never actually asked them, I think for like restaurants and businesses, whatever, sell them somewhere else. Um, so they're usually just using everything they can from what they get. Um, and, you know, I was reading some statistics since, like, 80 billion new pieces of clothes are produced each year. And that becomes a larger number every year unless we stop this. Mm-hmm. So it's like there's not a shortage of things going to thrift stores. There's no, not a shortage not. at all. And I also think that, like, this thrifting idea that, like, these people are thrifting and then selling, um, you know, these big Uh, companies are selling it on their website. That's not true. I mean, yeah, sure. I love thrifting still because it's like, it is something that gets me excited and I love it. I love like the hunt, you know, but it's like usually a personal Mm -hmm. thing. I just like do it for myself because I really enjoy it. Right. And I think a lot of other resellers like me do the same thing. They just like enjoy it, but then they have another source that they're going to like either, um, they're going to a rag house if they're they're available. A lot of people I know go to estate sales. I've done the rag house just because I have a friend that goes with me. It's in, I mean, it's really close to me. It's like an hour drive. Um, so for me, it's like I get 250 pieces at once and it's just done, you mm-hmm. know? And we have like a day yeah. of like going crazy because her and I are just like, we almost are on like drugs when we go there. We just like feel crazy, like excited, you know? <laughs> We're just like, ah, 
we've had yeah. like 10 cups of coffee or something and we're just going crazy. Right, right. Um, yeah. But yes, that is, that's not true. I mean, it's just not. Like, how can you say that when there's things constantly being dropped off? Like, I walk by the Salvation Army or the Goodwill in New York because I still go there, you know, just for fun. And there's a whole room that they usually have open, like the door, and it's just the drop-off room for donations, and it's filled to the brim. They can't even get the stuff to the floor. There's so much oh, stuff. No, I know. You're, pre- you're preaching to the choir over here. I already know this. I I just feel like I, we need to repeat it as much as possible because it's really this misinformation out there. I mean, I honestly think it's a it's – a, argument that's being thrown out there as legit fact and it's just like bad faith all around because it's really more this is my opinion Mm -hmm. here it's more like gatekeeping secondhand shopping thrifting Mm -hmm. etc um i say that because i've seen this kind of thing apply to various scenes or other interests that i've Mm -hmm. had in my lifetime you know what i mean like i remember like like as a teenager like it was like oh you can't be like alternative you must be like a poser because uh, you have a brand new pair of Jenkos totally. on or something and you're like you're you're like yeah they are brand new because I'm 14 yeah. and I didn't I was wearing child clothes before that you know like you know and it was like why can't I love this music just as much as you do why can't I be at this show like why is it less legitimate for me to be it's there so I remember Right? I was at a show once where a girl put a cigarette out on the top of what? my head and she was like, you don't belong here. Yeah. Oh like, God. that's an extreme version of this. But it's the same kind of thing where it's like, really, I'm just mad that other people are shopping secondhand or making a living off of reselling. And I feel like reselling is such a valuable yes. service because so many people don't have the time or access yeah. to go thrifting, you yeah. know? Or just, so I get really riled up about no, it. No, I get extremely <laughs> riled up too because it's like in New York, I've noticed this like big trend since I moved back from Bolivia that a lot of people are so much more aware of what they're doing and what they're throwing away is that they put things out on the street and see if someone wants it first. They don't just throw things <laughs> away. And Which is great. Obviously, bed bugs you know. is an issue, so we'd be careful. We're not we're not getting any furniture here, you know? I don't, at least. Right. I don't know if people are. Good for them. Um, but, you know, I see that, and I'm like, I've got some dishes off the street. I'm like, great. This is, like, amazing. I love that my neighborhood does that. Like, I'll see it, and I'm like, oh, my God, this dish is beautiful. And this person just had it in the basement for, like, 50 years. And they're just cleaning it out. And I got, like, this amazing mid-century mirror from, like, next door when they were renovating, like, the building. It's like, this is awesome. This would probably cost me, like, $600. And I'm not going to pay that. And someone's going to throw – I actually – sorry, on that note, I dumped – I went into the dumpster and had my husband, like, help me bring it out of the dumpster. Someone threw it in the dumpster. And I was like, this mirror is amazing. Don't do this. Um, Uh. It just made me so sad. And I was like – I was – I mean, I was about to go back in, and Milton was like, stop, don't do it. He's like, we're taking this one thing, and we're going, we're leaving. So he's pretty tolerable. Like, he tolerates, like, my weird stuff sometimes that I do, but I just, I can't see this happening. It's so hard for me. Like, it's just like, <laughs> come on. Can't we just ask people if they want it or just leave it on the street? And someone always takes it. I'm telling you, it's New York. There's tons of people. They always want something, and it's free, and it's expensive here, and we we need free things. Um, right. But, yeah, it's 
sorry, I also went on a tangent and forgot what we were kind of going into. Well, you know, I wanted to bring up that there is an account I follow Mm -hmm. on Instagram. Do you follow this account? It's all the... Wait, hold on. I'm I'm looking it up right now because you need to know. It's called Stooping NYC. Yes, I do. Oh, man. Right now there's an amazing cat tree. (laughs) It's incredible. It's funny. I actually posted something recently on that and it was... um, Actually, it was kind of a joke because it was this weird bust of, um, my God, what was it? Batwoman? No, not Batwoman. Uh, (laughs) One of those like Wonder Woman or something like that with like a cross or I don't know what it was. It was just very interesting. And I was like, come and get it, guys. No one came to get it. And I was like, oh, man, like, come on. Everyone always gets to stooping it stuff. Everyone's always, like, on it. And no one wanted it. Yeah. So it's fine. But I do follow them. But unfortunately, it's, like, it's always – because I live in North Brooklyn, and a lot of this stuff is in, like, South Brooklyn. So I can't ever make it on time. But I'm so happy that, like, people grab it up, you know? It makes me super excited because I see it. And it does make my heart extremely happy again. Because I'm like, there we go. Like, that's the way it should be. We don't want this. Here, take it. And I'm going to post this. So it is a a wonderful account. It's amazing. And the stuff they show, I'm like, I can't believe someone threw that out. But yeah, yeah. Can you believe it? I know. We need more more of that. We need something like that here in Austin. Someone should start that. If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. For the month of March, St. Evans is supporting Heart of Dinner, a volunteer-powered organization on a mission to combat food insecurity and isolation within New York City's elderly Asian American community. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. 
Country Feedback is a mom-and-pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul, and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl, or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns, handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed, made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at republica underscore unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnicware, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnicware in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnicware recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnicware offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at Cute Little Ruin. The Pewter Thimble is a curated secondhand shop based out of Rome, Italy. Owner Desiree Marie Townley has a background in costuming and makeup for dance and opera and focuses on dressing for the character you want to be in the world. Curated collections are dropped in a story sale and always have a specialized theme, like the color palette of Starry Night, the film classic Casablanca, and the children's novel The Secret Garden. Desiree works with local artisans, and pieces are rescued from markets and rehabilitated and resold with worldwide shipping. The Pewter Thimble is a collection of pieces that will have eternal style from the eternal city. Discover more on Instagram at The Pewter Thimble. So, okay, why do you love working with vintage? Like, why is this making you happier than your previous job? Okay. Let me think here. Can I start by just telling you why I named the company Seedling? Yeah, go for it. Okay, so Seedling Vintage came, the name actually came because I am an earth sign. I am extremely into gardening, into nature. I love hiking. Anything that has to do with the environment, I, I want to be in it. You know, mm-hmm. it makes me calm. It makes me peaceful. As soon as I walk out there, I breathe. I feel calm. And it's the most amazing feeling to me because meditation is very hard for me. I'm not a person that can sit still. Right. Um, so that's like my meditation and I feel stillness. So it's lovely. Um, so seedling kind of came from there because of gardening and growth. 
Um, so when I thought about it, I was like, okay, well, I worked at an urban farm for a little bit during COVID with my friend that is a teacher for NYU. And I remember us planting all the seeds for the season or different seeds at different times. And they all start the same way with two small leaves at the top. So basically the two leaves that are like sprouted are just to feed the plant vegetable flower tree um, before the actual seedling develops and it and then takes its intended form and shape, thus becoming what is meant to be. So I felt like it was kind of related to just the narrative narrative of life and how we always try and push against who we are, but at the end of it all, we are who we are meant to be. You know, mm -hmm. we can't push against it. We can't force it. It is going to be what it is, right? Yeah. Um, so that's kind of where, I guess it's kind of philosophical the way I came to it. No, but, I um, love it. I love it. I kind of, I can't help it. It's just like, I always have these like thoughts. It has to be like this meaning behind it, but it does, it just comes down to it. It's like, I've pushed against who I was for so many years, right? And then I'm finally at this point in my life at almost 38 going, okay, like this is who I am. I, I'm a little wacky. I go off on different tangents when I'm talking. I forget things sometimes. I am always talking. And then, you know, I am who I am and I have to accept that. And I can't be another way. You know, I'm learning and growing constantly. Things are always changing around me. So, um, yeah, that's where it came from. I love that. And, yeah. So, so selling vintage, you know, really important to you, something you're really, really passionate about. What's hard about it? Because it can't always be easy. There's got to be some times where you're like, this, this sucks right now. Yeah. Um, oh, gosh. So in short, I think basically where I've come to in my life is I'm just trying to adapt to everything mm -hmm. um, and not just go like this normal job route that obviously wasn't for me and was giving me like a lot of anxiety and just not making me feel good. And I'm just not a complacent person. And I finally realized that like, I kind of need these different avenues and I enjoy these different projects to feel like a little bit more fulfilled. Um, so I think I forever have a desire to change and continue and want more and dive in for something dive into something that I'm more passionate about. Um, because I'm a fully invested person, when I get into something, I just want to keep growing and going with it. Um, I think that derives from like my feelings of self-doubt. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting because it goes like I'm a very hard worker, but it actually comes from the self-doubt I have for myself. Mm -hmm. So um, it's this push and pull that I have, which I don't want to have the self-doubt, but it does lead me to really interesting places. Interesting. Um, and I have also noticed like this, I've kind of come to this conclusion about creatives that there's like these two types of creatives. And I, I mean, this is only my conclusion. Obviously, everyone has their own, you know, vision on this. This is what I've come to is that there's like these creatives that have self-doubt and need to prove to themselves that they can um, do something and people that have self-doubt and are worried to plunge into the unknown. So for me, I'm the first. I'm the person that plunges 
into the pool headfirst and just <laughs> goes for it because I right. need to prove to myself that my self-doubt is just my self-doubt. It's not real. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, creative can be hard because a lot of people, that's what happens. You, you're always like, is it okay? Is it, it, does it feel all right? Am I doing okay? Does it look good? Am I comparing myself to other people too much? Cause that's the problem with social media. It's like, it's hard. You feel like you're seeing the best of everything and it's because it's all curated. And I definitely do the same things to my stuff. You know, I have to, I put the best of my pictures up, you know, I do the same thing, but there's so much self-doubt. And sometimes I try and post like outtakes from silly stuff, you know, because I'll have like the craziest faces or just like, it'll take me like 20 shots to get like one decent shot of the outfit because I'm out of control, um, moving around and just being wild. Um, so yeah, I think a self-doubt has definitely been like my worst enemy and greatest motivator when it comes to this. Oh gosh, I hear you. I think that's so yeah. many creatives, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. I, you know, I know we touched on this. I just wanted to talk about it a little bit more. You know, we, we talked about this myth that we're running out of secondhand clothing. Yes, which, not running out. Not running out. And you were telling me you've actually seen the impact of the excess secondhand clothing in Bolivia. Oh, my gosh. So, yes. Um, so, my husband and I got married in 2014, I believe. We moved to Bolivia to 2017. And um, so, there is one of, like, the biggest open-air markets for... I guess just secondhand clothing or secondhand items, actually not just clothing. It's like, ev- like literally everything under the sun you can find there. Um, and it's called, um, oh my God, Feria uh, de El Alto, which is like, um, so we lived in La Paz, Bolivia and El Alto is like a little bit higher up. It's like the plateau before you hit the mountains. Mm-hmm. So I'd go up there and um, I would buy clothes for my son. A lot of those, which I hoarded for when he gets older. So he's wearing them now. Um, <laughs> but um, it's funny because the U.S. actually sends a lot of stuff down there. So that just shows how much extra we have of everything. Because they're sending piles and piles and piles and piles and boxes and this and that. I mean, the, um, if I could take a photo for you and show you how big this is, it's just, it's unbelievable. It's like, I don't even know how many blocks. It's just so huge. I, I'll have to find a photo somewhere to show you because it's unbelievable. And it's kind of like the style of, um, you're just digging through bins basically, mm-hmm. but you would see tags from savers on there. Like I know what tags look like from different vintage stores, obviously from just vintage shopping for like my whole life. Mm-hmm. So I'd be like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. This is just coming from the US. It's all just making its way over here. And that just goes to show how they don't have enough places to put it here, that they're actually sending it to other people. So that's another debunking myth of that. Yeah, yeah. We're not running out of secondhand clothes. Like, I just, I can't say that enough because I receive so many questions, like, you know, from people who are like, hey, I'm a secondhand seller. Yeah. And I've been getting a lot of pushback from people telling me that what I'm doing is unethical or wrong. Mm -mm. And that makes me really, really sad, actually. Same Um, here. 
Right, right. You know, selling secondhand clothing has been going on since the beginning of time. I think we're talking about it a little bit more because there's more access to it Mm -hmm. than has been there in the past here in the global north, you know, because we have all these platforms. But we need those platforms because even, you know, only 10% of stuff that goes to a thrift store is sold in the first place. Oh, my gosh. I didn't even know that. But there you go. That's like the shining example. Like when I would go to the feria tons of thrift store stuff from here it's just all getting shipped down there it's it's amazing to see how much yeah no i mean the thrift stores are receiving way more than they can ever even begin to sell and so what's happened is one they're even pickier about what hits the sales floor and two they only keep it out there for a few weeks maybe a month and they're like well it's got to be pushed out to make room for the new i mean that's you know, we're wow. all familiar with the color coding. Of what's, the, what's, the, what's the deal of the what's week? The deal right? Of <laughs> right? It's not they're not doing that just because it's like a super fun thing to have as a customer. I mean, though it is fun. You're like, you gotta is. find the blue tags, right? But it's actually because they use those tickets as those colored tags as sort the of markers, like a, a reminder right? of like, yeah, yeah, that stuff came in the first week of the month. It's time for all the stuff that came in at that period, the stuff with the blue tags, to be mm-hmm. half off, you know. And, exactly. And then in a week, we're going to pull it all off the floor because there's going to be new blue tags coming in. And that's uh, the stuff they probably send to South America. Oh, pulling off for the floor. sure. They're for packing sure. it up and sending it. I've seen the boxes. You know, I've walked into a shoe store at the Feria that they have a box of shoes they received from the United States. And they're selling them. Yeah. So it's just, it's there. Yeah. You know? There's there's so much, so much. And I just, I, I, first off, I, I guess I just feel like we all need to be there and counteract these bad faith arguments against resell, against getting mm-hmm. more people to shop secondhand. I don't even understand how anybody can feel okay saying that out loud. Uh, I know. It's really <laughs> you know? sad to me. Like, I just don't understand why that would be something you would feel bad about. Like, it should never... You should never feel guilty about reusing something or trying to, like, do something better or just, I mean, if it makes you feel good, I'm not saying, like, if it makes you feel good doing that, like, why do you have to listen to everyone's opinion about I mean, what you're doing? It's a hard world, right? I think yeah. that in this so in the social media landscape that we live in now, we we experience other people's opinions more often than we have ever in his, the history of humanity. Oh you know? my gosh, I guess. Right? Like before someone would have had to go to the effort of writing you a letter. Oh my God, or a note. Yeah, ex- notes exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and even then, the number of opinions that you would be a subject to in any given day would be significantly smaller because they could only come from people who personally had contact with you in real life. Yes. Right? Oh my gosh. So yeah. true. The bad faith argument out there is that if we all go secondhand shop, then we're taking clothing away from poor people. I, I first off, I hate that this like feeling that like, oh, no, really, my bad attitude about secondhand shopping is like, no, it's actually like, I'm trying to protect these poor people out there, right? I'm doing a public service. But like we said, there's way more clothes than can even go around that everybody, regardless of income level, will have plenty of access exactly. to plenty of secondhand clothing. And we need to stop scapegoating resellers or secondhand shoppers for our yeah. frustration of going to the store and not finding what we want right away. Because we never did. We never went to the store and found exactly what we wanted in one trip. Well, ever. like... 
also like don't expect perfection like just stop expecting everything to be like this little cute box that everything's going to be wrapped in it's like there's so much complication and there's Mm -hmm. so much that goes into all of this like I guess I'm kind of tying this into just being a reseller there is so much going into it I mean the people don't realize that like I actually sell things at a pretty low price point I was talking actually to a friend yesterday they're like well for what you do and like the pictures you take it seems like you're selling at a really low price point but I'm like you know what but I feel like it's okay like I don't want to sell for higher but I get what you're saying um but you know I guess that's my own moral decision but you know, I do see people that do sell for a lot sometimes. And I'm like, whoa, this is quite a bit. But, you know, it's everyone. I get it. Like some people have these amazing pieces and I get that. But then it makes me feel like it's just heading back to that same realm of consumerism where you're like, who has the most money to buy this thing? Mm-hmm. You know, and um, and that I don't know, that's a little bit hard for me because I, I only have a few like really high priced items and everything else is pretty affordable. So that's just my own, you know, conscious, I guess. Um, But I mean, definitely. I also think like what is affordable is a relative term, too, because people might look at your shop and be like, what? I could buy something new for Forever 21 for less than that. And you're like, yeah, touche. You could. That's not the point. Yeah, that's actually a great. That's another subject, too. It is so true. Like the work that I put into things. It's just me and my husband. Right. You know, and you're working like you're. Time has value. And I have a son. You know, it's not like I'm just doing this and it's just really, really easy. Like, no, I'm making sure things don't smell like uh, someone's basement from six, seven years ago. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm making sure things are clean. And sometimes I don't get all the stains out because I can't have all the time. But, you know, I am doing my best. You know, I'm mending things. I'm trying to make sure I'm giving discounts on anything that does have issues with it, you know, because I feel like people can and should start doing things themselves because I think we live in this world where you and I probably didn't grow up in it as much that like younger people don't realize that like you can do things for yourself. Mm -hmm. You can do them. I used to sew little things for my dolls and, you know, I used to sew little um, like dresses or I used to make little wallets out of things. Like you can do things like this whole social media has made things seem as if like you don't have the power to fix this yourself. (laughs) Like it's not that hard, you know, like we can do it. And you know, the the work that's put into this, like it does retain value because not only do we care about what we do, but like, I care about how it looks, you know? And my husband does that for free for me. You know, he has other jobs. He sets up for me and does all that stuff. And I know you work with your husband too. So it's, yeah, yeah, no. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, like podcasting is sort of similar to uh, resale as in that like people think I just like plug in a microphone and record a conversation yeah. and upload it to the internet and I'm like oh no. my god there's like so many steps in between mm-hmm. you know like it's the same thing with resale it's not like you just rolled into the goodwill grabbed a few things real quick took them home slapped them up on a website and collected your money like there it just doesn't right <laughs> I also, you know, I take pride in what I do and I want it to look nice. So, 
you know, I want to show that like this dress is beautiful on someone or no, totally, you know, and I'm also very honest, like, Hey, this didn't zip up in the back. Like, just so you know, <laughs> like make sure you check the dimensions. Cause I wasn't getting into it. So like, I'm always very honest about all of those things, you know, like people will be like, this, all everything fits you. I'm like, no, it doesn't. It's a trick. Like, you know, you have to be on. I'm like, I always tell people because people message me. They're like, everything looks great on you. I'm like, no, it's not like that. It's called a trick. And my husband's a photographer for 20 years. He knows the tricks. I clip (laughs) shit all the time. I'm always taking clips in the front and the back to make things look nice, you know? And I'm always very transparent about it. I'm like, this did not fit me. Right, right. crazy. Yeah, it's funny. It is funny. I mean, you know, you, you only know it if you do it. You know, yeah. like that, like all of the work that goes into it. And like, by the way, everyone, if you just got outraged when Leia said that she clips stuff, uh, <laughs> like every retailer is doing that. Yeah, every retailer is doing that. Though, like I, I'm gonna bleep out the name of this retailer, but yeah. uh, obviously, uh, not only <laughs> do they clip the shit out of stuff, of course, for, like their denim and some other like more specialty items, they actually alter them to fit the model in the studio yeah they do and that's normal that's normal right yeah i mean milton was telling me a story about if he's on a lingerie shoot they put uh if it doesn't fit the model they would have this trick where they would put like a piece of like a toilet paper roll in the back so it would fit in the front (laughs) so it was like the most crazy thing i'd ever heard he's like just grab a toilet paper roll i'm like what the fuck are you talking about he's like no seriously a toilet paper roll and i was like Okay. And then oh he my God. Did, took a picture one day so of it. And I was hilarious. like, it's so real. Yeah. Yes. So, like, these tricks are real, and it just makes the picture look nice. It's ridiculous. So, like, don't ever believe that things... That's the thing. It's like, there's always this, like, this mystified version that everything is great. It's not like that. <laughs> you know? <laughs> We're trying to do our best to make things look very nice. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, it's honesty. Like, I'm being honest. Like, I always write it down. Like, this has been this. This has been this. Yeah. But, you know, we're careful. I'm careful about it, guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, do you have anything else you'd like to add? Any important knowledge, wisdom, final thoughts you'd like to share with everyone? Uh, I just want to say that I still enjoy, like, the grungy, you know, mom and pop shops picking. It gives me the anxiety, the excitement, the emotions. Like, I think I haven't lost any of that, you know? Obviously, I'm doing it on a bigger scale, but, like, I still love all that. And I I think it's cool that people still do it. Yeah. I mean, I love hearing that because I don't want people to stop doing it. And as, as a person who just does it for my own personal use, like... I love secondhand shopping. Like it's yeah. because it's not predictable. Like I'm, it's not like you're like, okay, I'm going to go to Target and get a set of mm-hmm. sheets and some bins and some underwear and some socks. And you know that exactly. that will happen. It's not like that. You can't go in with a plan. Like it's, that's what's exciting about it. Yeah. Me. It's like it yeah. makes my butter, my stomach like get butterflies. Totally. Like every, just like for last comment, every place I go to visit I will like be staring out the window looking for a thrift store. Like, <laughs> Me too. And I'm like literally taking a pin and dropping it and like Milton, stop the car real quick. Let me put the pin in. Oh my god. And then like go visit it later. 
you know? No, that's everywhere we go. We bought an RV during the pandemic. And every trip in it was less camping and more (laughs) thrifting. (laughs) Oh, my God. I made Milton. And Milton's not like a huge thrifter. Oh, no. um, (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, his his tolerance of like how long he can be there is like I could be there for hours. He can be there for like 20 minutes. Uh So usually it's a drop me off situation or me driving there myself and doing it for hours. So I usually have to time that out and do it, but it's okay. (laughs) He's very supportive of it, but um, yeah, I'm the same way. I'm very much like, I love to see it. It's so much fun. Yeah. So I think it's still like long live the old school way of doing things, but it Mm -hmm. also is awesome to have like those big warehouses that are like also doing that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's totally yeah. my dream to go to one of those because I just want to see, oh my God, it's amazing. see it go down. Yeah, I wish yeah. I could take a photo. They don't let you. I know. That's the thing. <laughs> like, I got to figure out some other way to get in there because I'm not a reseller and no one I can know. take photos for me. And I'm like, oh. Well, you could go in as a guest with me. So oh. I have my friend come in as a guest. You can, like, bring oh. one person to help you. Just okay. Saying. Next time I come, come to, to New York. York. Yeah, we're going to do this because I just need to know. <laughs> I need to know, guys. <laughs> yeah, it's really fun. Honestly, it's fun. It's crazy. And I respect their no picture because I'm like, I don't want to be on the blacklist. Like, I don't. Yeah, no, I get cool. it. Yeah, I don't I don't <laughs> want that either. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much. This was so much fun. What a great way yeah, to spend I a Sunday afternoon. It. Yeah. Thanks for putting this out there. And I love what you're doing. And, you know, props to you for working and doing this as well, because it's hard. Thanks again to Leah for spending quite a few hours talking to me. You have to remember that even before we record what you heard today, we have at least one other phone call where we talk for an hour or two about what we're going to talk about. (laughs) So thank you so much, Leah. It was so great to get to know you. And I can't wait until we meet IRL. I'm super grateful for Leah's time. And you can find her on Instagram as at seedling underscore vintage. And I'll share that in the show notes too. I asked Leah later on, after we talked for hours, if she had any final notes she wanted me to share with all of you. And she asked me to remind all of you that it's so important to teach young children now about how there are already plenty of clothes on this earth. We don't need to contribute to overproduction and waste. She said, quote, less is more with kids. They grow quickly. And if they don't ever go shopping, it doesn't become a part of their mentality to think it's so normal to have to get new clothes before each school year, etc. And you know what? I can totally agree with this. I think we're sold this idea that to be good parents, aunties, uncles, godparents, etc., we should shower kids with stuff. And new stuff is kind of addictive, right? I speak from experience. I I spend so much time, usually while I'm doing laundry or other household chores, which there are always a lot of those to do. I spend a lot of that time thinking about my own relationship with shopping and stuff. When I was a kid, virtually the only thing we did as a family was go shopping. That is how quality time was spent. Like a standard Friday night or Saturday afternoon was hitting the mall with my mom and my grandma, who I adored. And it was always preceded or followed by dinner at Pizza Hut or something similar. I correlate 
Pizza Hut with my family with shopping and all of those in my childhood memories are in the good times column, right? This was how my family spent time together. The adults in my life didn't read books to me or teach me crafts or tell me stories or go for walks or play games with me. This is how they bonded and it was how we bonded. I quickly learned that shopping was fun and how relationships were built and stuff was how we showed our love to one another by buying things, by going to a mall. This was the stuff love was made of. And I know I'm not the only one. It created really positive associations for me with shopping, with new stuff, with the mere act of being in a store. In fact, I dreamed of working retail as a kid, how glamorous and exciting it would be to work in a store surrounded by stuff that people would buy, that people would love me just because I was there in a store, everyone's favorite place to be. Of course, then I actually had a retail job and found out that the vast majority of customers, well, they tended to treat me like garbage. But That still didn't break the connection in my mind between shopping, new stuff, love, and happiness. Understanding why we buy so much stuff starts with taking these journeys back in time to other parts of our lives where we can start to see how it all began. And that's step one to changing it up for ourselves and the next generations. I'm working on this personally every day, and I hope you are too, and I hope that you feel supported in that journey. In fact, I think our next audio series is going to be talking about our relationships with shopping and stuff and how we're working it out. So stay tuned for that later in the spring. Okay, one last thing for today before I start coughing again, which is, it's it's a ticking time bomb, this throat of mine. <laughs> I just wanted to thank all of you for your kind thoughts and messages as I took the last two weeks off from making the show, which has never happened before. I'm a workaholic. I definitely grew up in the kind of environment where the adults perceived value of one another and themselves was rooted in how hard they worked. So even though I know that everyone requires rest and should take that time for themselves, that we should help others take that time for themselves. It's really difficult to actually do it. And I can almost hear some of you nodding your head as I say that, because you know, you're feeling me right now. I work a full-time job. I still help a few clients. I have all of the adult responsibilities of a parent and a partner and a friend and a daughter and all of these things. It's a lot. And normally I can juggle it, but honestly... Two weeks ago, I created an Instagram post debunking a lot of the myths around secondhand clothing and the ethics of it all. And you know what? It just got to be too much. I was drowning in nasty messages via Instagram, email, Facebook, and yes, even LinkedIn. What? (laughs) Do we really have to take it to LinkedIn? It was just, maybe it was LinkedIn. Maybe that was the straw that broke the proverbial camel's back. I don't know. But you know what? Camels are strong. I looked this up. They can actually carry 
375 to 600 pounds on their back. And you know what? I am very strong. I have been through some shit. I know how hard life can be. And you know what? I can handle a lot. Working on Clothes Horse has tested me at times. I'm, you know what? I'm not looking to be famous or even known by a lot of people. In fact, even the idea of being popular is really painful for me, (laughs) really scary. It's a really uncomfortable place for someone like me who's experienced a lot of trauma in the past. Every time I post about vegan leather being plastic, a very straightforward, clear fact here, I am drowned in threats and nasty messages. Last year, some people who I assume are vegans found my phone number online, like my personal phone number And were sending me creepy, threatening texts. And you know what? That was a big, scary lesson for me. And it forced me to start thinking about things that I'd never thought about before. But it also didn't silence me, nor will it silence me. The same goes for talking about anything else I discuss around here. I don't take these subjects lightly. I don't say things arbitrarily without a lot of research and consideration. I am an overthinker. I stand by what I do here because none of it is impulsive. (laughs) And trust me, this whole thing is a learning experience because I'm a fearful person. So my first impulse in any remotely scary, threatening situation is to immediately vacate, just get out of there. But I stand by what I do here. This is my place. You're invited here. I'm glad to have you here. I'm going to learn how to be strong when the dark corners of the internet jump out in front of me because this this is important to me. And I know it's important to you. I heard from all of you in the last few weeks that My work is meaningful and has made you think about things and have conversations with others and make changes. And I don't want to stop doing that just because somebody decided to be a jerk on the internet one day. That said, I got to stay strong. I got to keep up the hard work. I need to give myself a break sometimes. And I'm going to continue to do that more. This is not easy for me. But you know what? I want to go on RV adventures with Dustin. I want to see all of my loved ones that I haven't seen since the beginning of this pandemic. I want to travel. I want to rest. I want to meet new people in our new home. I want to live life. But I also want to keep up the work I'm doing here with Close Horse. When I say that working on Close Horse is the best thing that has ever happened to me, that's not hyperbole. It has given me meaning and a sense of purpose that I never had before. And meeting all of you, hearing your stories, learning from you, that is one of the best gifts I've ever been given. So I'm going to get better at taking a break. Thank you for listening, spending time with me, and boosting me when I need it. I'm, I'm so grateful to have you here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. If you want to support the work I'm doing here, you can find out more at patreon.com slash podcast. Thanks, as always, to my other half, Dustin Travis White, who was up all night coughing, but still managed to mix this episode for us. Bye.